Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. The need for better mental health services for our youth is dire. Just listen to these alarming statistics and see if you find them as alarming as I did. One in 20 Iowa high school students has attempted suicide one or more times. One in 20 Iowa high school students. Suicide is the number two leading cause of death for Iowans ages 14 to 44. Now, the growing mental health crisis across the country has was exacerbated by the pandemic. We know that, uh, and it hasn't let up either. The first part of our program today, we want to discuss how the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics is collaborating with colleagues at the University of Iowa College of Medicine and also with primary care and mental health providers around the state. They are using some grant funding that has existed for many years, but also some new grant funding to expand mental health care capabilities serving Iowa's youth. We want to mention at the outset and again at the end, if you are in need of help, you can call this new number 988. That is the Nationwide Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. 988 is the number that you need to remember or pass on to a friend or loved one. That's the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Due to their schedules, they could not join us live. I spoke with them yesterday in our Iowa Public Radio studios in Iowa City. Dr. Tom Schultz is a professor and uh, at the University of Iowa uh, uh, College of Medicine, also director of the Division of Child and Community Health in the Stead Family Department of Pediatrics at the UI. Dr. Schultz, welcome back to our program. It's been many years, but welcome back. Well, thanks, Ben. It's great to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Joining me as well, in the studio with Dr. Schultz, Alyssa Dubé, Director of Clinical Services at the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health at the University of Iowa. Alyssa, welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me today. Let's start off with the seriousness of this problem. I mentioned a couple of statistics. Um, and, you know, I mentioned this to my youngest son, who is now in his early 20s, Dr. Schultz, um, I said, this is surprising to me this morning when I was preparing for this. Is it surprising to you? He's closer to the high school age than I am. He said, not in the least surprising to me. Dr. Schultz, tell us uh, about the problem that we have here with mental health and suicide ideation in our state and across the country. Well, Ben, uh, you captured the statistics perfectly, and it is something that we recognized, developed, uh, and became better recognized during the pandemic, and that increasing need for mental health services and the increasing prevalence of mental health disease seems to can have continued to increase even after the pandemic has settled down a little bit and people have returned to their more normal lives. Um, so that is troubling. There's something in our society that is causing this problem to increase and the, makes the need to diagnose and treat kids uh, with mental health illnesses even more urgent at this time. Mm -hmm. Can we say how much uh, more of a problem this is than pre-pandemic years? Is there a way to uh, to get at that? It's tough because um, 
when looking at statistics for the, the prevalence of mental health disease, a lot depends on the availability of providers. Um, when I talk with our child and adolescent psychiatries, uh, psychiatry colleagues in the UI Department of Psychiatry, they talk about wait times in the emergency room or wait times for their clinic. And they're really all dependent on the number of practitioners that they have available. So they can't use those numbers to gauge how much mental health illness there is out there. As soon as they have providers available, the clinic slots for those providers are filled. So um, there have been some measures uh, nationwide, some of those statistics that you provided uh, that do reflect some of the more serious levels of mental health illness and the increase in occurrence of some of those are gauges. Uh, and it may be things that Alyssa has seen in her work that identify some specific parameters in the school systems or in the state of Iowa um, that may be helpful in really quantitating that amount. But we do know the need is there and the availability of providers to support the diagnosis and treatment is really where the bottleneck it bottleneck exists. Okay, so you you put your finger on it sounds like one of the the chief causes in this uptick uh, in in um, mental health the crisis uh, among our youth is simply we don't have enough practitioners. We, when when a child is in need, we can't get to them early enough and with the services that they would need, doctor. That is correct. Yes, that that diagnosis, the early diagnosis and treatment is really key for the success of the kids in school, the success in their building relationships, the success in working out issues with their family, all these all these areas that you know are so important to getting through day-to-day -day life, uh, that early diagnosis is critical. And that's where getting services to the schools or into the communities is really um, where uh, the need exists and, and what we're working on. Mm -hmm. Alyssa, before I ask you a little bit more about the problem and its causes, um, tell us a little bit more about the, the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health at the University of Iowa. What is, what is your mission? You've only been around a couple of years. Right. So the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health just started two years ago with funding that came through the governor's office. Um, we've been working directly with the Iowa Department of Education to increase training and access to services and uh, research on school mental health in the state of Iowa. Um, so the center has uh, four different arms or components. Uh, I represent the clinical services arm, but we also have arms focused on professional development for teachers around school mental health, as well as other um, educators in the school building. We have an arm dedicated to research and training around school mental health issues. Um, and then we also have an higher education arm that focuses on the, the college uh, population. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on this alarming statistic. One in 20 Iowa high school students uh, has attempted suicide one or more times. I don't know if you can um, fill us in more about that. And what we're particularly interested in, I think, is the path to the ideation of taking one's own life. Um, it's hard to follow, um, isn't it? But walk us through that. And, and where can we intervene effectively? Yeah, it's it's very challenging um, 
it's it's a topic that's alarming to a lot of people, so it makes people uncomfortable to talk about it. And that's one of the biggest things that we want to work with educators and all these people who come in contact with these young folks is one of the first steps is being an open person that they can talk to about it so they can access help. Because what we know about these students is a lot of them are struggling and they're embarrassed or ashamed of that struggle and they keep it to themselves and they don't get the help they need, which also leads to the problem of getting accurate statistics. We don't know how many people are attempting. We know how many people it gets reported out are attempting. So it could be much higher. Absolutely. It could be much higher. Yeah. Yeah, Right. And I think it's important to recognize that statistic are the students who got beyond the step of thinking about taking their life and making a plan and have actually attempted um, to end their life. And we know there's a much higher number of students who have been thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So what are the what are the the thoughts that such a youth uh, young person would have uh, that would lead them to the conclusion that taking their own life would be Uh, the way forward. What can we say about that, Alyssa? I think it's a very individual process. Um, You know, I can't predict what one student might be experiencing, but for a, you know, for a lot of students, there may be a sense of despair and hopelessness, feelings that their life is, is so difficult that they, they don't want to or cannot see themselves moving on and continuing. There may be a sense of like feeling a burden or not wanting to, um, have a negative impact on others. Um, you know, this is a mental health issue that isn't, when speaking with others, it might not make sense to them in the moment. Um, and so having a way to connect with these students and provide them with that support and giving them access to resources is so incredibly important to interrupt that process of going from thinking of ending one's life yeah. to, to making that attempt. You know, we're all under stress, the world being what it is and has been for several years. I wonder if that ties into it. We can all get uh, feeling exasperated by the world as it is. Does that tie into it at all, do you think? Um, the the outlook for a young person in a world that seems uh, really on the edge of, um, uh, you know, we've got climate change, we've got multiple wars, large wars and things. That's where I'm going. Yeah, I think it absolutely can be a contributing factor, especially knowing, you know, students today are so incredibly aware of things happening around the world in a way that technology didn't allow us to a few decades ago or a few generations back. So having that awareness, knowing about all the pain and suffering in the world or potential things to come um, can certainly lead to that sense of hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Uh, After a a break in just a moment, we want to talk about the Uh, the hopeful side of this, the services, the increase in services here in Iowa. But before we do, we've got about a minute before the break. Dr. Schultz, what else can be said about causes? Because early on you said, you know, we experienced the pandemic. Why didn't we bounce back to uh, levels that we saw during, before the pandemic? Well, I think, you know, there was this sense of isolation um, that was brought on by people not going out and that uh, had been mitigated to some extent through the interactions that were possible electronically, but it still, I don't believe, replaced the interact the person-to-person interactions. And, um, and just to briefly say, I suspect also just the electronic media, the cyberbullying and the other access to um, online um, resources, if you would call those perhaps in quotes, uh, does have a 
possible negative implications as well. Okay, so yeah, what we've, what we've all experienced going down a rabbit hole uh, in, in a sort of a silo of information that can be um, keeping us away from hopeful things, things to improve our lives, but just dwelling on the darkness. Is that, is that where you're going, That's Doctor? exactly it. That's yeah. exactly it. Okay, and Alyssa? Yeah, and I think one of the, the things we've noticed is students in the past could go home and maybe if they're having bullying issues at school or whatever, they could get away from that. And now it's around them 24-7. They never are you know, disconnected from those messages that they're getting that, that may be hurtful. And I really want to reemphasize your point of that isolation. And I, I hear a lot of students just continuing to feel isolated, feeling mm-hmm. they don't really have a place. There's not, they don't belong um, to any particular group or community. And that can, can certainly um, exacerbate some of these other challenges. Okay, we've got, we have to take a short break. We'll be back with Alyssa Dubé, uh, Director of Clinical Services at the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health at the University of Iowa, and Dr. Tom Schultz of the UIHC uh, and the Stead Family Department of Pediatrics. Back in a moment with more River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. In the first part of the program today, we're discussing the growing mental health crisis across the country, uh, exacerbated by the uh, pandemic, um, but also particularly here in Iowa, and in particular among youth. One in 20 Iowa high school students has attempted suicide one or more times, Uh, Suicide, the second leading cause of death for Iowans ages 14 to 44. Uh, With us, Dr. Tom Schultz. He is a pediatric cardiologist, professor, and director of the Division of Child and Community Health at the Stead Family Department of Pediatrics, the UI. Also, Alyssa Dubé, Director of Clinical Services at the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health. Uh, She's a clinical associate professor of counseling psychology at the UI as well. We we went into the problem in in some depth in the first part of our program here. Let's talk about uh, what gives us hope, what we're doing about it here. Uh, Dr. Schultz, um, we've just had a renewal for uh, of, a, of a grant. Um, talk about that because you've had five years of a federal grant uh, funded through the uh, Iowa Department of Health and Human Services. Now there's a three-year renewal. Let's focus on that five years. What was done? How big was that grant? What was done with those monies? So this was a grant from the Health Services and Resources Administration. Um, We partnered with our colleagues at that time when we applied at the Iowa Department of Public Health that is now in the Department of Health and Human Services. The uh, award was for $450,000 a year for five years. And, and the title of that award was the Iowa Pediatric Mental Health Care Access Award. And the goal of that funding was really to provide improved mental health care access for kids in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And there were a number of ways that we set out to accomplish that. 
Um, a big component of that five-year funding was what we would refer to as workforce development. And what we were trying to accomplish with the workforce development component was to train primary care providers, nurses, therapists, um, school personnel in ways to recognize and in the primary care provider and therapy stand, uh, standpoint, from their standpoint, um, provide methods that they would better understand some of the therapies to treat kids with mental health illness. And so the goal was through webinar series and in-person meetings prior to the pandemic to have an opportunity to educate these providers in the diagnosis and treatment so that kids could receive that those services in their community without having to travel to Des Moines, without having to travel to Iowa City. Um, and we worked very closely with our partners in the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry that's head by Dr. Hannah Stevens in the Department of Psychiatry here. Uh, and she was uh, very resourceful at identifying topics both for diagnosis and treatment. Uh, and over the five-year period, we've had over 2,000 providers participate in our webinar and in-person meeting series. And so um, it's had a great impact in some of that initial um, less acute or less severe forms of mental health illness and allowing providers in communities around Iowa to better diagnose and better diagnose and better treat those kids. Um, and, and again, it, that workforce development is, is a way to amplify the mental health care services that we have within the state. And it, I believe, has been quite effective. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now those, that, that five-year period goes on to this three-year renewal. And uh, Dr. Schultz, do a handoff, so to speak, to uh, Alyssa and the uh, Scanlon Center for School Mental Health, uh, because they are new in this new portion, this new three-year grant. Um, hand it off, and, and then we'll have Alyssa talk about exactly what these new monies will be used for. Yeah, we were, we were so excited um, that uh, a year ago we received some uh, additional funding uh, that was supposed, on the, in the fifth year of our grant, that was supposed to be focused on improving mental health care services in the school. And it was specifically designated for school services. And we were so pleased to learn about the work Alyssa was doing. Um, it was a perfect match for these additional funds that we were, were, were receiving at that time and allowed us to provide a great foundation for being competitive for this three-year renewal. So this the, the ability to partner with the work that the Scanlon School for Mental Health was doing really made our proposal much more competitive than it would have been without. And it, uh, again, I'm just really thrilled to have this opportunity to partner more closely with uh, Alyssa and the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health over the next three years. So Alyssa, how will uh, your division uh, uh, clinical services be using this money? And what difference will it make uh, across Iowa in various centers and schools? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for a little context, our center was funded for three years through the Department of Education, and we are now in our third year. So it's been very important um, for us to be thinking ahead, what are we going to do to sustain the work that we've started? Um, all of our services in our first, year, first three years have been free to all students, all educators um, in the state of Iowa. 
So talking with Tom and having this opportunity to go for some additional funding has been instrumental in being able to maintain some of the work we're doing. Um, this funding will help us uh, continue to provide clinical services to students and educators in schools. Um, the two primary services that we are offering is a telehealth clinic. Um, and I could go on about this for a long time, so you might just have to cut me off. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but the, the telehealth clinic allows us to work directly with these students while they're at school during the day. So it really addresses barriers students are facing and families are facing of having to find providers in the community that may or may not exist, particularly in more rural areas, having to take time out of school to go to those services, having to take time off work to drive to you know a service center that may be an hour or more away. Um, we're also connecting directly directly with the schools and making those referrals. So we're finding students who maybe don't have the family resources to identify that a need is there and to provide those services. Yeah, and, so, yeah, and, and telehealth, yeah. just to jump in here too, in earlier conversations I've had, telehealth is also helpful in, in reducing the stigma. You don't have to go physically to a place. Uh, not a lot of people or no one has to know uh, that, that you're actually getting mental health services. And that helps, right? doesn't it? It does. I mean, ideally, it would be no big deal to go and see your therapist. No more of a problem than going world. to see we your pediatrician. We wish it were that way, but it's not. Yeah. And this this does um, help reduce several barriers. And one of those may be a barrier around how people feel going yep. into a therapist's office. But, but you were going to continue. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a little bit of an overview of our telehealth service. Um, our post-crisis service, we're really excited about because it's pretty novel. We um, are able to work with schools directly after a crisis event that has impacted the school community. So in many cases, this has been a student suicide or an unexpected death. Um, it could be a natural disaster. And schools have in place systems to provide immediate crisis response in those first 24, 48 hours. But there are a few resources that exist to extend that support, though the trauma and the need is still there. So we've been able to work directly with schools to have therapists go into the building and provide direct services to students and educators who need that service service, um, to also offer just a safe space where people can come and engage in, um, you know, mindfulness activities or other um, other activities that allow them to kind of take a break and, and think about what's happening for them. And then also providing psychoeducation about, you know, the reaction you're having is, is normal. This is an appropriate reaction to this kind of crisis event. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. So having those conversations with folks um, has been it's it's been a wonderful experience, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's been beneficial for those involved. When we talk about the difference between rural and uh, cities, um, uh, rural and urban communities here, when there is a suicide in the community, uh, does it impact a, a, a smaller community differently, usually, than, than a larger community? Suicides are impactful. People experience those in strong ways. They have strong reactions. I, I have noticed with some of the, the rural communities, um, it may just present a little bit differently because you see in these communities, everybody knew the person. Um, sometimes there's a sense of like safety in, in rural communities where they think, oh, we're a small town, nothing like this could happen here. And that can really shake them um, when they see these events happening. Um, and then, you know, particularly when then you see this event happening every year or every couple of years to students in their buildings. So I definitely hear um, more of the stress. They also have fewer resources and personnel in the schools to manage those. So we may have one school counselor for the district who's trying to manage this for the whole district. District while also dealing with their own stress um, and grief. 
whereas a larger community might have more of a team to spread out that um, responsibility. As we finish up here, a couple of things to touch on quickly here. And Alyssa, we know when we talk about um, suicides that the LGBTQ, uh, gender-fluid youth, have some of the highest rates of suicide, right? That's accurate. How is this challenge unique when you talk about training people to address those concerns in schools and in communities across the state? It's a really good question, and I I don't know that there's an easy answer to that. I think it's really important for people to have awareness of how um, diverse groups of individuals may experience the world differently, maybe have different hardships that they're facing. And when we know something statistically that LGBTQ youth have higher suicide rates, we just need to know that when we're working with those youth, that we need to be more aware uh, and assessing for suicidality um, to help with keeping them safe, finding what are the resources that are available to them to keep them safe. How have Iowa's new recent laws uh, concerning young LGBTQ youth at schools and the, the way uh, staff and teachers may and may not interact them with them or without parental um, uh, consent, how has that shaped the training that you provide to staff and teachers at schools uh, concerning mental health? I think it's so important that students have places where they they do feel safe and they belong. And it's important for, in our training clinic, our students and all of our staff to be not only aware of the mental health needs of a variety of populations of students, but also be aware of what the legislation is, what the laws are, um, so that we can help people navigate and find the support they need in the way that they're able to access it. Um, I think currently there's a lot of questions. There's more questions than answers maybe in what is allowed and what isn't allowed. And that leads to feelings of stress. And so we're waiting to hear a little bit more about um, what we can expect with the laws. Um, And in the meantime, we're just making sure that we serve every student and meet them where they are and try to help them identify the places where they do feel safe and have the supports that they need. One of the things that um, we have uh, done through our Division of Child and Community Health, um, we have regional centers in uh, kind of around the perimeter of the state uh, where we provide direct services uh, and as part of this um, Pediatric Mental Health Care Access Award, um, provide direct telehealth, telepsychiatry services into those regional centers. Um, And I think it's important that we recognize the need to um, provide safe spaces for the kids of of whatever, um, however they identify their gender. And that's, I think, an important aspect that we've done in some of our trainings as well is to provide that education to providers and communities that just the recognition of uh, the safe space concept is a value for kids as they walk in the door. Um, if they're experiencing a mental health issue, uh, recognizing that this is designated as a safe space allows them to open up uh, a little more readily, allows them to feel more comfortable with any sort of issues related to gender, gender identity that they may be experiencing. Mm-hmm. You identified that suicide as something that traumatizes an entire community, be that a rural or a city community here. But, of course, in our culture here in the U.S., we have hundreds of mass shootings 
every year, uh, averaging more than one a day, mass shootings, um, uh, as, as defined as incidents where, where four or more victims are shot or killed. There are also dozens of school shootings every year. Do we have that? Uh, does the Scanlon Center have that as a contingency? Uh, will these monies be used for that? Should an Iowa community be struck by such a tragedy? Yeah, this is something that we've talked about. Um, it really falls within our, our broader post-crisis services. And we have worked with schools where there hasn't been a shooting, but there has been um, uh a lockdown or reason to fear that a shooting was going to occur. And we've we've gone in and met with folks to talk through that experience, um, particularly, you know, students in an elementary setting and what was it like to be pulled into a space and lock the doors and be thinking about how are you going to protect your students and also knowing your own child is down the hall. Right. In and and to, be, to be clear, for those yeah. of us who haven't been in school for a while, um, if they didn't uh, experience a real lockdown, a real threat, all students uh, do training exercises in lockdown, which are traumatizing in 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 their own right, aren't they? And I mean, we, we don't want them to be, but we also want students and staff and teachers to be prepared. Right. And I think people respond in different ways. And there are some people who are going to be more susceptible to finding that pretty traumatic. Um, for other kids, it might be they know nothing different and they've, you know, they've they're used to it. But it's certainly... Um, something that we want to prepare to be ready to support folks through the process of, you know, going through a, a school shooting event or anything else that's traumatic like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so we're focused on resiliency in terms of our youth mental health here. Uh, we recognize by now that gun violence is not going away. Um, sadly, at least anytime soon. So, uh, Dr. Schultz to be resilient there. Uh, in in the way we respond to tragedies and prevent shootings, prevent um, you know depression, suicide, ideation, and so forth. Yeah, I, I, that is right on the mark, Ben. And I think that um, that's where training ahead of time comes into play. And that's uh, again something we're hoping to uh, we will continue to do with this funding. Be able to provide training in areas where emergent situations arise, and the best way to respond to those emergent situations is to be ready for them, is to know how to respond and know who to reach out and how to reach out. Um, so, yeah, I think that the the more background we can provide for people, the more information that can be conveyed to providers in both rural and urban communities throughout the state, the better prepared we will be to respond uh, when these unfortunate events uh, inevitably occur. And just to mention again here, as we close this conversation, if you or a loved one are in need of some help, you can always call 988. That's the new number we should all keep in mind nationally. It will tie you in to local resources and is anonymous uh, if you wish to be remain anonymous. 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us in our studio today. Alyssa Dubay of the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health at the University of Iowa and Dr. Tom Schultz uh, of the Stead Family Department of Pediatrics at the UI, a uh, pediatric cardiologist at the UI as well. Thank you both so much. Thanks thank for having us, Ben. Coming up after a short break, a conversation recorded yesterday with outgoing Des Moines Mayor Frank County. 
at the age of 75, and after some 20 years of serving as mayor of the city where he was born and raised, County chose not to seek re-election. It's River to River from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This portion of the program, a conversation recorded yesterday with outgoing Des Moines Mayor Frank County. At the age of 75, after some 20 years of serving as mayor of the city where he was born and raised, Frank County chose not to seek re-election earlier this year. Earlier this month, Connie Bozen won the Des Moines mayor's race and will become the first woman to hold the capital city's top spot. Uh, Connie Bozen will become the new mayor in early January of 2024. I had a chance to speak with Des Moines' Longest-serving mayor, Frank County, yesterday. Mayor County, welcome to our program. Thank you. Great to be here. Remind us again to start off with why you chose not to seek re-election. Well, you know, I served two years on the uh, the council um, before running for mayor and then 20 years in that uh, position. I thought it was time to move on to a new chapter it, uh, you know, it seems like I spent an awful lot of time at the city, including uh, even um, before serving on the council um, on the Planning and Zoning Commission and chaired that for six years or so, and uh, where we wrote a new comprehensive plan. And then before that on uh, another board, uh, which we called the Convention Center Board at the time, and Polk County has that now. But um, I just feel like I've given a lot of time, uh, you know, to the city and planning, and it's um, we've still got family businesses and uh, things going on. And uh, I figured, hey, after 20 years uh, serving as mayor, I'm proud to have done it, but I think it's time that the city um, has a new leader, and uh, I'm happily moving on. When you recall how you entered politics as a member of the Des Moines Planning and Zoning Commission um, uh, at-large city council member way back in the early 2000s, that must seem like an eternity ago, or or does it not? (laughs) You know, actually, parts of it just seemed like yesterday. Um, And it's sort of like, uh, you know, as we go through it, uh, you know, day by day, sometimes they go very slowly when, you know, we're in the middle of a a pandemic or a flood situation like we were in 2008 and 2010. Those days just drag by. But um, here we are in 2023. It just seems like that whole time has just flown by. And uh, um, with so much to, to remember and all the working that we've done through the years with all of our citizens and the local businesses and thinking together and planning together. And while some people, you know, would say, well, you know, Thank you for doing it. Well, I didn't do it. I helped convene everybody and bring people together. Certainly, I had opinions and things I wanted to um, move and bring more people to the table on. But we do these things together, and that's how I've always taken it. And uh, I'm so proud to have worked with such a great staff at the city. And as I say, the residents and the neighborhood leaders and the business leaders and, you know, trying to think, how do we make Des Moines more exciting, more inviting, 
make it a place that people want to live, to raise a family, to have a business, to start a business, to grow a business, and then hopefully make it a place where that next generation wants to be here too and, and is excited about the possibilities. Mm-hmm. In just a moment, Mayor County, I wanted to ask about your proudest accomplishments. But before that, um, of course, uh, you'll be uh, transitioning to a new mayor, as I mentioned, in early 2024. Connie Bozen will be sworn in. Sworn in. You endorsed her, I believe, back in September, and it, uh, she won by a, a narrow margin. Based on what you know about Connie Bozen's priorities, how do you expect that mayor-elect, uh, Bozen, to, to govern differently than you have? Do you have any disagreement on issues? Uh, do you think it will be uh, a big change for the residents of Des Moines, a slight change? Uh, uh, what are your thoughts there? Well, you know, Des Moines is a, a, a council and manager form of government. So we've got a good manager and good uh, leaders in, in city management. And I think we've worked hard uh, over the last 20 years to, you know, put a new generation of folks in uh, to some of those in almost all those positions now that I think about it. And I think that they uh, have worked with her on the council for the last six years now. I think that it'll be a, a transition. Certainly she's going to probably have different ways to run the meeting or um, set priorities, but I think that, uh, you know, with the leadership and I think she has the ability to uh, to work with others on the council and, and try to reach consensus on issues. I mean, certainly there's always disagreements on specifics, but um, generally speaking, we've tried to all, you know, work together and I'll bet 90 plus percent of the time um, we we do that. We think together and we work together. And I, I think that she um, has had the experience, not only as mayor pro tem over the last, this last year, I worked with her. And, uh, you know, moving forward, I think that, you know, some of her community experience and her um, business experience and her even serving on the, um, uh, the school board gives her sort of a sense of priorities and how to prioritize things and uh, how to convene conversations with uh, our community and community leaders. So I, I, I think while it will be different, I think that uh, the direction will be still the same of, of trying to work together with others in our community um, to make this continue to be a forward-moving great place. Let's look back, if we could, Mayor County. You took office in 2004. What are you most proud of having accomplished in your some 20 years as mayor? Um, how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> well, how about, how about no. a survey of the high points? I, I, I understand, yeah. Well, you know, we, uh, we worked on, on uh, when I first came in on budgeting and, and things like that. I had sort of difference of opinion coming from a business background um, on how we should go. I mean, there was a <laughs> actually uh, um, one of my first campaign was about turning the lights back on. They were going to save money by shutting off every other street light uh, around a lot of the areas of the city, and I thought it was a public safety issue, and uh, a lot of the neighborhood leaders um, actually agreed with me, 
And uh, I sort of ran on, let's get the lights back on and turn them on in City Hall and let's all work together to, mm-hmm. you know, find better solutions. And we actually did that. We we got it done and, and we're, you know, very focused on keeping a, uh, a good credit rating for the city and, and continue to move that forward. And we've put good people in those budget finance positions. So I'm very proud of that piece. Um, you know, we looked at a lot of work we've done as I say, with citizens and in the neighborhoods. I mean, we now have a parks um, plan that's going to put a park. It's We're dedicated to putting a park or a trail within 10 minutes of every walking 10 minutes distance of every citizen in the city of Des Moines. And we're getting close to that. I mean, we've got 77 parks uh, lots of different variety, including dog parks uh, and those kinds of things. But we put those in place and put amenities in those parks to meet um, sort of requests and dreams and thoughts of our citizens and our neighborhood leaders. And so um, I'm really proud of getting that done and that the staff stepped up and is doing it. Um, You know, look at how things have changed. Uh, Look at Gray's Lake, for instance. I mean, you know, we used to have you know, a, a a motel down there on the lake, and now it's just a gorgeous park. And, you know, over a million people go there every year and, and walk around and enjoy it. And it's open to everybody at no cost. And I think that's one of the things that amazes so many people is they look at the amenities here in Des Moines that, you know, meet the needs not only of our citizens but of visitors. Yeah. And they, they notice it. So I'm really proud of that that sort of thing. And, of course, let, we've had— yeah, go, let, go let me expand—have you expand on that because it's not unrelated to your reputation uh, for environmental advocacy. Uh, even on a national and global scale, you, for instance, serve as president of the Global Executive Committee for Local Governments for Sustainability— uh, you spearheaded ADAPT, DSM, a plan for how the city will respond to climate change and reduce harmful emissions. Going from the, you know, parks for everyone within a 10-minute walking distance to to have you just reflect and take stock of Mayor County on and the accomplishments on your environmental agenda. How satisfied are you uh, with what's happened at a community level in addressing climate change? Well, you know, I think we, we've made lots of progress, and this ADAPT DSM is really a great update. We were actually one of the first six, seven cities in the United States to be a star community that was working on it with the United States Green Building Council and ICLE, that International Council for the Local Environmental Initiatives, which was as it was formerly known. And we put this together and to lead by example. But, you know, uh, technology has changed, the risk has changed, and uh, we uh, brought in Jeremy Karen, uh, who has been working since he came here the last two, three years, um, to put together a really strong plan that meets the needs of, you know, here we are, 2023, moving into 2024. And we needed to be much more aggressive, as does the rest of the world. I feel good about what we've done up to now. I feel really good about this plan and how it moves us forward. But, you know, we've seen some of the other little pieces that are sort of examples of, you know, a rather hmm, 
severe climate situations. I mean, I got to tell you, five years ago, I didn't know uh, what a derecho was. And, uh, you know, here we've seen like four of them in, in the Des Moines area. And the devastation that that has to one of our best soldiers uh, to absorb carbon and, and prosper and absorb uh, excessive moisture and other things are trees. And, Lord, um, the first derecho that we had uh, came through. We had over 9,000 truckloads of tree debris that we had to clean up around this city. And we have to replant that and keep expanding our urban forest. And I think that our uh, municipal arborists and Jeremy and our building people, they all are looking at everything that we can do in every aspect of it. So I'm, I'm really happy with uh, the direction that we're going, but hopefully um, we can't do it and solve the problems of the world in Des Moines alone, but we can show people what we're doing and hopefully they'll follow our lead. And we can spread it not only around Iowa, but around this country and around the world and show people what good actions look like. But we've got to accelerate it. We can't wait another 20, 50 years to come up with the solutions. Because um, if we look at the reality of what happened, it, it appears as though this last year looks like it was not 1.5 degrees over that Paris Climate Agreement number. Uh, it was 2.5 we can't have that kind of thought process and see the excessive amounts that CO2 and other holding uh, um, circumstance in our atmosphere that is holding this heat in. And we're seeing it not only in the atmosphere, but we're seeing in the temperature of the ground levels also that are accelerating actually even faster than the air temperatures. So we've got to work together. I'm excited about Des Moines, but... Um, Let's lead by example and bring the rest of the world along with us. Mm -hmm. you, you said we're all in this together as local community leaders, so that's a marked difference than our national leaders, where there is still a lot of a, a lot of um, controversy over climate change and whether climate change, which it is, is you know the science says it's humans are doing it right. Uh, so you're saying there's more of a consensus at a local uh, political level than there is a national level, and. Well, and, and, and I, I, I think that's true. I mean, I know that there are some, you know, locals that, you know, aren't as moved to, to step up as quickly as others. But in the meantime, I've got to tell you, one of the issues that, that it separates local government from other levels of government, and I'm not saying all of them, but certainly we've seen examples of it, we function in a nonpartisan fashion whether it's talking about climate change, whether it's addressing pandemics, whether it's taking care of issues of infrastructure, potholes. I mean, specifically, I don't know how many times I've said it, but, you know, there's no Republican or Democratic pothole. It's a pothole, and we have to take care of it. We're, that's what we're elected to do, to meet the needs of all of our citizens, not just some of them, whether they wear a red shirt or a blue shirt or a green shirt or no shirt. I mean, we're in this together, and uh, that's our level of government. And uh, we try to keep that controversy of, of partisanship and going to the left or the right or whatever. We've got to, you know, overlook that and listen to our citizens, listen to the businesses, and make this city, 
this state, this country, this world a place that is sustainable for thousands of years to come. Mm -hmm. If I can ask for very quick responses to a few concluding uh, questions here. Uh, you have a few weeks uh, left as mayor of Des Moines. Uh, in a phrase, what will you miss most? You know, I'll miss, uh, uh, you know, working with staff, working with uh, my fellow council members and, uh, you know, setting goals and have that good warm feeling when you see them coming to uh, acceptance and slowly sometimes coming to fruition. Mm -hmm. Whether it's, you know, the fixing of the streets or the parks or the raising the levees to protect our citizens. I mean, I'm going to miss that. I will miss, you know, setting those goals and setting to get them done and watch them getting done. Okay. And what will you miss least of all? Uh, sometimes the hardest thing to do, again, is is sometimes finding ways to work with other levels of government. And uh, I don't want us to begin to become more partisan at the local level. We need to stay nonpartisan, and we need to find ways to bring all levels of government together to meet the needs of the people. And uh, I, I just hope that that can move forward and, and it can get done. And uh, I think we'll all be better off for it. Des Moines Mayor Frank County. Uh, he will be retiring as Des Moines' longest-serving mayor in early 2024. Mayor County, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And that does it for today. Today's program was produced by Danny Gear and Caitlin Troutman with technical help from John Pemble. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. ¶¶